word why. What a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. A key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Okay, so oftentimes I walk into an interview with an idea of a path that I'd like to go down. But you know what? Today, everybody, I think I actually want to set that plan aside because we're in for a real treat. Aaron Rasmussen, he is the co-founder of that thing known as Masterclass, which so many people know. And he is the co-founder and CEO of outlier.org. So we're going to go on a lot of different paths. I had the, the, it was such a pleasure to spend time with Aaron in San Diego at a a very influential education investor uh, event this spring in San Diego. And he couldn't have been more inspiring. Uh, It was a bit of Jackson Pollock, I don't know, Aaron, how I would connect the dots here. We're going to talk about Hogwarts meets Blade Runner, but uh, Jackson Pollock, and maybe we'll complete that sentence at the end of the uh, uh, the interview here. Um, Aaron, just tell me, right, let's start with this. What has got you jazzed uh, this morning? Tell me what gets you jazzed. <laughs> well, one, <laughs> thanks for, for having me. Um, I So there's a lot of things that have me jazzed. The stuff that I'm most excited about, I, I can't talk about yet. We'll have some really big announcements. So the thing that I can talk about that was top of mind is I got stuck on this one line I read about the SR-71, which is you know the famous uh, Mach 3.2 uh, spy plane. And it said that it could do astro-inertial navigation during the day. So what that means is it, it rolls out of the garage, and it can lock onto stars during the day. So already it, it, it starts out this crazy thing. So this, this is like a month or two ago, and I start heading down this wormhole of how is this possible? Well, there's not a lot of information about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm starting to look up, well, what's sort of the backscatter spectrogram on the sky? And, you know, what's sort of transmission frequencies? Are we looking at stars? How would one do this? So I just keep going down and down and down, down this path. And um, I, I mentioned it to a provost friend of mine. He said, I know who you should talk to. He's this astrophysicist. So I actually just had that conversation yesterday. And I had to point out, there's no purpose to any of this. <laughs> I am just, I'm just curious. I think I want to take some photos of the stars. So we have this amazing conversation yesterday. And he says, I don't know the answer, but I do know an astronaut that studies sensors. So this ridiculous thing has just gone down this path of trying to understand how you can see stars during the day. And it is doable. It is doable. So, so, so what were you like as a 10 year old, Aaron? Were, were you this, cu- <laughs> were you this curious? Uh, yeah, I was. So, um, there, so I grew up in rural Oregon and there is not a lot to do there. Um, in sort of the traditional sense, there's a ton of things to do there. If you like unsupervised adventures. Um, so my buddy, Josh and I would just sort of routinely get ourselves trapped miles and miles from home with our snowmobiles stuck in a snowbank or, you know, whatever pops tires on our mountain bikes. And, you know, we got chased by a bull twice. Josh appears in many of those stories, um, which is, is funny. And I can't tell if I was the instigator or if he was, but 
you know, there's a rumor. pattern there. <laughs> but, but I do remember, I think I was about 10 or 11, and I read uh, an article in U.S. News and World Report about a Vortex gun. So think of those, those science exhibits that you might have messed with, where it's like a Quaker oat can, you fill it with smoke, and you tap it in the back, and a smoke ring comes out the front. Well, you can actually do that at extremely high speed, and you get a Vortex ring, and supposedly, at extremely high speeds, you get a, a standing shockwave in the middle. It's pretty wild. But I was curious about this. I was like, well, I want to make a Vortex gun. That sounds fun. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> so I wrote U.S. News and World Report as like a 10-year-old. And I said, hey, there's this inventor that you interviewed, Gaia Belensky, and I would love his contact information <laughs> so I can reach out to him and discuss this. Because, I mean, this is pre-World Wide Web. Uh, era, right? So it's like, I'm going to libraries and such. And they wrote back he and did. they said, here's his information. He'd be happy to chat with you. So I called this guy up and uh, he's this eccentric inventor and he was so sweet to me. And we we talked through how he'd gone about building this. And I ultimately ended up building one um, and it was a, a total blast. So there you go. That's uh, that's a... <laughs> Aaron, <laughs> 10 years old. <laughs> so so how does that play out today? I mean, does that give you the kind of, I mean, that to me feels like a seminal moment. I mean, yeah, we can have fun with that, but there are many 10-year-olds that are thinking about it in that regard, um, even sort of take the generations out of it. And would a kid today sort of search on the web for somebody's contact information? Was that something that was just supported from a family perspective? This, you know, you be curious, Aaron, like continue to go down a path. Yeah, I think there was a large influence from my parents. So um, one, I think there was sort of an action, a, a bias towards action. So uh, my mom, who's rather clever, uh, noticed that I love to play video games more than anything in the world when I was about four. And she said, okay, well, you can play video games, but you have to do it in an equal amount of time as you use the computer as a tool. And I was like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? And she said, well, you can learn to type. So by the time I was five, I could touch type, right? Mavis Bacon teaches typing, if anybody remembers that generation. <laughs> I do. Because I was like, I will do whatever with the computer just so I can play like artillery or whatever the, the games were back then. So then I was five and I was like, well, what, what now? Like, how else do you use a computer as a tool? And she said, well, maybe you should learn to program your own video games. And gave me a, a book on Smart Basic. Um, which, you know, ran on a Coleco Atom. And if, if people have never seen one of these, it's, uh, you know, it looks basically like a VCR, but it takes an You might have to explain cassette. even a VCR to the audience. Yeah, it's a good point. Okay, so it looks like a, it, it, here's what's funny. It looks like a DVD player. It's like, you're, you're going to have to explain that. It looks like a PS4. Um, <laughs> so it looks like a PS4, but you put an audio tape in it, literally an audio cassette, and it records programs on that. So I started to learn to program. So I think there was this, this sense that like, if you enjoy something to participate in it. Now, the second side of this is my dad was a middle school science teacher. So the questions that I asked as a kid generally had answers um, or trailheads as to where to go. For example, why is the sky blue? Well, it's refraction, you know, the higher frequencies scatter and you can see the blue. Okay. Well, why does that happen? Well, I don't know. Let's look it up in the encyclopedia. Right. So th this, I think the question why 
that that curiosity that every child has um, was not only rewarded when I was younger, but it was also something that I was taught to be able to explore myself and and sort of get those uh, rewards as an autodidact. So I think by the time you're 10 and you're just like, can I get a stamp to send this letter to US News and World Report? And your parents are just kind of like, okay, like whatever, <laughs> whatever this weird kid's doing, you know? Um, I think it was sort of an, uh, this, this flywheel. And if there's one thing that I'd love to be able to, to pass on to everyone else in the world is that flywheel, that, that curiosity having just intrinsic benefits uh, and joy in it, right? Like the, it's really, it's, it's on that hedonic scale. Um, and then as you grow in your career, you find that that curiosity ends up being incredibly valuable. What's more exhilarating for you? the pursuit of the answer or the answer itself? That's a good question. I think it depends on the category of question. So I am extremely applied when it comes to mathematics, for example. Not, I don't get a lot of joy out of theoretical um, mathematics for the sake of the theory. What I do get a lot of joy out, out of is the second I learn a mathematical tool, picking it up like a hammer and using it to whack something into the shape that I want it to, to look. When it comes to other things, I don't have a good example off the top of my head. That pursuit is fun. It's like being in your own private episode of CSI, Obscure Astro Inertial Navigation System. <laughs> I was going to say like a detective. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Now, my experience of you, Aaron, in the, in the time that we spent together in San Diego, and even just today, is that I experienced you as an artist. Uh, and I did say Jackson Pollock, and maybe that's because it was front of mind that there is a there's a brilliance to the way you might see something that I couldn't understand or depict, but that I should sit in that and I'm going to understand life a little bit better or different because of the lens that you put in front of me. And we talked about cinematography uh, off air and these sorts of things. So where are you right now in the way in which you would categorize your your profession, your art, sort of who you are professionally, because I do get the sense that you are an artist and through success, you've been able to now accumulate paintbrushes to do the things that really interest your level of curiosity in the world. Fair or foul? Um, I, I, th I think you're being too kind as far as uh, me being special in this way. And it, it, I feel like other people have a lot of that sort of artistic sentiment and reflexively push it away. So I, I think, yeah, I'm just disagreeing with you right there <laughs> because is I, it, I really is it un, I mean, how are you, how do you handle compliments in that regard? I think it's very oh, interesting terribly. for people. Well, and I think <laughs> I, I, seriously, that this is actually something I work on in my life. I do not, I don't do well with compliments for whatever reason. And I, I try to learn to just say thank you. Um, but but there is a part of me that feels that a lot of what I can do, so many people can do, if given some encouragement. You know, like that, that there's, there's this thing that happens to people. I mean, I, I had this great conversation at a dinner on Saturday with all of these really extraordinary, you know, Stanford doctors and head of design studios and neuroscientists and such. And we were just talking about when an undergraduate asks you, how do you come up with your ideas? How do you answer that? 
you know? And it's taken me 10 years. And I'll, I'll, I'll come back to your, your question on the, the artist thing because I, I really love that. Um, but here we are in Tangent Town, as one of my friends used to say. Um, it took me about 10 years to figure out a good answer because you realize that the question's actually misstated. They're not asking, how do you come up with your ideas? They're asking, how do I come up with ideas like that? And I think it does kind of get beaten out of people somewhere around middle school because I think people do have a lot of ideas and most of them are bad, right? As you're growing up, you have these like crazy ideas and you don't have a good simulation of the universe in your mind yet. And that's one of the good baseline goals is learn to simulate the universe in your mind, whether it's the social networks and structures. For example, if I say something, how will somebody react to it? Sort of theory of mind or the physical world. You know, I can eyeball a piece of metal and say, well, that support my weight. Um, now, of course, when you're young, you can't quite do that because you haven't loaded in yet. So you're like, well, that support my weight. Yeah, probably. And you stand on it and everything collapses and you've just learned a really valuable lesson. Um, so the answer that, that I've found to that one is uh, anytime you see a problem, try to solve it. Because what I think your brain automatically does that. I mean, a rhesus monkey will try to solve a problem for the intrinsic value of solving it. There can be no no reward, no food, no treat, no pat on the head, and they will literally solve problems. So I think there's something very basic in us that wants to do that. And I think that that we kind of get wrapped on the knuckles when we're we're younger for it, you know, kind of stay in line, this sort of thing. So I think, you know, allowing people the the freedom to sort of try these things and and fail, you know, can really help start that flywheel in their mind where every time they see a problem, they try to solve it. Not this like it's out of my capability, et cetera. And, and realize that they're subconsciously rejecting many of their solutions, I think. I think the solutions are still in there because they're like, oh, that probably wouldn't work. And that's the thing is, yeah, most of the stuff you think of probably wouldn't work. That's why as long as it's running all the time, you're going to get that one once in a while. Where you're like, hey, I think that might work. So I'll, I'll come back to the artist thing. You're really getting me on a, a very uh, magpie mind day, but I, I do consider myself an artist and I love to create things. Businesses are one of the things I create. It's a medium just like acrylic or oil, or I tend towards sort of sculpture and writing. Um, and I, I do feel validated when people, you know, spend money for the output of it. I think that that is, there's something that's important to me about that. But I've met other founders certainly that have a similar approach to the world. You just want to create. You want that intrinsic value of creation. And business is one of those, as you said, uh, you know, uh, how should I say this? You get a lot more paintbrushes. Uh, with business, but the business itself is one of the paintbrushes. What if you put humility to the side? I, it's interesting for me when I've talked to people that have reached a certain level of success um, that I almost get the sense that there's this reticence to, in essence, evolve with that success, define it how you, you might. Um, because if they change, sort of, if they even tinker with their constitution, even if they could, would they risk a backslide? from the very success that they had worked so hard to achieve. How do you square that? How do you think about that being the 10 year old Aaron to the, the guy that's in front of me right now, when you think about either 
changing the way you you operate or integrating in confidence in a way that maybe you hadn't in the past because you felt good being humble and you feel like that's just been it served you well you know are you a golfer that changes his swing sort of mid-career uh like a johnny miller and doesn't see the success maybe that he had earlier how do you think about that and how do you maintain sort of this consistent level of acceptance of who you are and where you're going yeah that is a good question i think there is always that fear because I, I think there is a sense that you know you have something in you that allows you to do what you do. And it is special. And you don't want to damage it. And maybe by changing a bit of who you are, you will lose that thing. Now, for me, I think the biggest difference that I've found is I, I have what I like to tell uh, the undergrads that I speak to, statistical confidence. You know, when I was younger, I was extremely cautious, like even as a skier, like as a kid, you know, my older sister was just like so daring and just going <laughs> off jumps. And here I am just like trundling down the hill, like not falling, you know. <laughs> um, but what I realized is, you know, a lot of people sort of have a very thin type of confidence, right? It's sort of a lot of bluster, this sort of thing. And I, I think it does work. I think it makes up for insecurities. What I've ended up with is. I've done a lot of stuff. Um, a great many things have not gone well. A great many things have gone well. So when I have to estimate whether something will go well, whether I'm confident in it, I have statistical confidence where I can look back and say, well, you've made the right decision a lot of times. It's highly likely this is the correct decision. Now, hysteresis isn't the perfect way to go about things. But what it does do is make you very immune to insults, right? Because there's plenty of people out there who will say, you're a bad person, right? Like, what are, you, what are you doing in education? Are you trying to upend education and make things worse? I feel like it's pretty obvious, no, but like, you know, people are, are entitled to their opinion. But when you have a statistical confidence, you just don't feel it in the same way. You know, they say, oh, you're, you're bad at whatever. And you look back on your life and you just say, I mean, just from a probabilistic standpoint, no. And I have a lot of confidence in, in probabilities and discrete mathematics. One of my degrees is in computer science. Um, so I, I think I have gained that type of confidence. I think when it comes to things like just accepting compliments and stuff, I don't know. I'm sure that's some sort of personality disorder or something. Um, <laughs> I think the other thing is really an awareness of just the, the fact that you as a person only contribute so much to your success. You know, there's so much luck in business, in any creative endeavor. And there's usually so many people that have contributed to it, that it, it feels hard sometimes just taking a compliment from someone because I can't help, but, but think of all these people, you know, and, and think of all the luck and think of all the happenstance. Um, I tried to make a list of everybody that helped Outlier when we launched, um, because I really want to do that. I really want to send an email to everyone that helped along the way, you know, pretty much starting with, uh, you know, Sir Ken Robinson, uh, if you're familiar with his work. I, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to spend time with Sir Ken, um, an amazing human being that, I don't know about your experience, but even offstage, it's the same kind of irreverent, it's just you kind of pinch yourself. You don't, you don't want to, you want to be in the moment, but you also want to be aware you're in the moment. 
Yes. Yes. He, he really was the same person on stage and off, which I think is what made him so electric in many ways. Um, you know, obviously rest his soul, but he was one of the first people I talked to about this. We just sat there at lunch for like two hours and hashed it out. Um, so I start making this list and there were 400 names on it. 400 of 400 of people that these aren't people who are employed at Outlier. This is people who made an introduction, people who helped with advice, people who I went out and found people who had tried to do the things that I'd done um, or that I wanted to do with education and had failed at them and asked them to relive all those horrendous moments and help me understand why. Um, that's when we launched Outlier. Imagine the number of people that have helped us now. Anyways, this is part of part of what goes into, I think, uh, why it's hard for me to just say thank you sometimes. You know? But I think that says a lot. I mean, by not saying, you're actually saying a lot. I think there's a lesson in there for entrepreneurs uh, in, the, in sort of the, the, the coming generation to understand all the different pieces that come together to make something happen. How has your relationship to failure changed over the years? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Failure is such an interesting buzzword in Silicon Valley. You know, you've got this sort of fail fast, this sort of thing. I think over the years, and one of the best pieces of advice I got was from one of my mentors. He said, Aaron, I don't think I ever really figured out life till I was 35. And he goes, I don't know what that means, <laughs> but it means something. And just keep that in mind. It was, the, it was one of those things where it, sometimes in your 20s, some older person will give you advice that you can tell is like super important to them. And you're just like, That's, that seemed useless to me. Um, he was right. You do a lot of things start to fit together. And I, I want to say one of the things that did was that it's actually hard to say anything's a failure on a short time scale. Right? So if, if something happens that looks like a failure, you might realize a couple of years later that that led to a major success. So I, I very much let go of the roller coaster. Sometimes I, I like to say that sometimes things just are. I love that, like letting go of the roller coaster. I think that's a big challenge. I, you know, tell me about this. I've had a theory when it comes to starting businesses that there's this, it's a slippery slope for a lot of people. And if they don't have maybe the science teacher as a parent and, and another parent that encourages this sort of curiosity, right? Stumbling through life, but doing so in a joyful, you know, detective manner, that when you make the comment, if you and I are at the bus stop with kids and I say, Aaron, I'm going to, I'm starting a business. It's really akin to me going on Facebook and telling everybody I'm going to lose weight and then having the masses hold me accountable. And I feel like the pressure to, especially for the upcoming generation, and we're going to pivot to education and talk about outlier and what you've learned from masterclass. But I do think it's really interesting. We think about it because it's like returning, you know, returning a car at the airport. If you back up, you're going to pop the tires. So it's almost like this pressure that people put on themselves to say, oh, well, the next time I'm at the bus stop and Aaron says to me, Rod, how's your business going? I've got to almost have an update for you. Like I might have with my spouse as if I'm supposed to be making these sort of major leaps from Monday through Friday and then continue like compound interest, like Warren Buffett, you know, and that kind of pressure, when you get down to it, I've heard more entrepreneurs talk about that. And it's this lonely spot that resides in the back of their mind that is present day and night, that they feel this, they've got to one up. Everybody has to one up. I don't know if it's our culture or not, but I do think it impacts our relationship, 
the proximity to failure, our understanding of how to embrace it or not. Uh, how has that impacted you? I mean, have you felt that ever, especially after the success of a masterclass? Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy, Matt, at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now back to our guest. Absolutely is the short answer. Uh, you know, I think you can fall victim to a huge amount of social pressure. Uh, you know, whether it's explicitly defined or not, you know, you grow up in a culture and it just infuses you with these values. And uh, it's really good to be aware of what those are. And it's really good to travel and understand that not every culture has the same type of values, right? So, um, you know, Israel is well known for having uh, more startups per capita than any other place on the planet. It's a good book. Many years ago, Startup Nation, there's about this. And part of it was that not trying is frowned upon more than trying and failing, which is interesting. That's not the case in, in every culture. In fact, in the US, you know, we, we, don't, we don't love failure. I think that's why people sort of obsess with uh, uh, it in Silicon Valley and trying to figure out their sort of relationship to failure. Um, I have 100% felt that pressure. Um, as you get further in your career, though, I think you realize that the, you know, only the only uh, real pressure there that you have is, is sort of to your team, to your colleagues and to your board. And what I've found is just being very transparent um, is a good way to go. It's, you know, that, that's kind of my style. Um, and it's different than sort of the, the chest thumpy version that you run into with some frequency. Uh, and I think that, I don't know if it, if it puts more or less stress on me, but I have found that people really, really appreciate it because they know, they know what you're getting. So when somebody's starting a business, um, I've always had like horrendous, usually very sarcastic advice. Um, like when I was younger, I used to say buy a convertible because it's the last time you'll see the sun. Um, if you're starting a business, um, just a bunch of stuff like this, or, or I, I like to say, so you've decided to ruin your life. Um, you know, because it does what, once you're on that and it business filters people out that just don't, don't really want it in the same way and they'll get filtered out quickly and that's okay. Now I had a friend that started a barbecue, it ended up being successful. Uh, it was delicious and she sold it, uh, only about a year and a half in. And she was like, well, that was horrible. And I never want to run a restaurant again. What a valuable learning experience. She's like, I've literally been dreaming about that for like 20 years. And it was awful. It was an awful experience, um, which, which I thought was pretty funny. But yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not immune to any of this, you know? And I think identifying it and being able to push back against what's societal, what's your personal goals, um, and what is the people around you? You know, the whole mastermind theory, right? That you're just sort of the average of the four or five people you spend the most time with. Uh, the more I found people think they're independent thinkers, the more I found they tend to fall victim to that. By the way, that may be too much of a negative connotation there. I shouldn't say fall victim to it. Surround yourself with good people. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lift you up. 
I think it's fair. I mean, I appreciate the correction in that regard, but I, but sometimes I think a reality check is okay. I mean, we are in the world of, you know, sort of clapping at everything, you know, honorable mentions. And then you wonder when kids are struggling to understand when something doesn't go their way and you go, well, it's kind of been right in front of us. You know, um, it doesn't have to be survival of the fittest, but you know, it's the, the pendulum in some regards. Let's pivot to masterclass. So Look, people can read up on the backstory of masterclass and, and all of that, but I, I want to, I'm keenly interested in what was it? Because going with this notion of, of a curious soul uh, that, that you are, it feels like there had to have been, it's like in a dark room when, when you see just a spot of light coming through, like a window isn't sealed correctly or a door or something like that. Was there a light that caught your eye and said, there's another level to this? that maybe we hadn't thought about that again, scratched that curiosity itch for you that said, I may not know it's outlier and I may not be sitting down with Sir Ken yet, but I got to go figure this out. Tell me about that transition. And was it some, was there a seminal moment? Was there reflection from somebody who used masterclass or one of the, the providers? Walk me through that. Yeah. So uh, the short answer is no, it wasn't a transition between masterclass and outlier. I actually wasn't sure if I wanted to do another startup at all after masterclass. And with masterclass, you know, the um that was definitely a, a personal curiosity thing. Um you know, and we can talk more about that if if you want as well, but basically I spent quite a while getting masterclass set up um to be able to to pass the torch. You know, I realized that it was just too it was too overwhelming to be, you know, running all of creative, literally directing, overseeing all of that, also doing product as also the CTO. And then as the co-founder, you've got a lot of duties of just co-founder stuff. You know, as you pointed out, it can be pretty, pretty tough to be at the top of an org. Um, and that also means, you know, raising funding and all of those other things. So I was able to step away and then literally I spent a year traveling. I went to 28 countries. Um, my, I had one goal, which was just understand the world better. You know, I feel very lucky for the, the success of Masterclass. Being able to choose what you do next has not been something that's been in my life. You know, I grew up very low income uh, in Eastern Oregon, and it's been just sort of grabbing opportunities where I can find them. Um, and then for, for once, I could just say, so what do I want to do? What do I, Aaron Rasmussen, want to do. And I think it was really only during those travels that I, I finally understood without the static of my culture, of being, you know, an American, my immediate friend group, the industry I was in, all these pressures that you feel that I think can make decisions very difficult um, are silent when you're traveling alone. Now it takes a while, but I remember I was in um, Shanghai and it was just one of those strange moments where I wanted to go down this alley. And it's not something I would ever do if I were traveling with someone uh, because there's, you know, there's a sense of risk to it, right? I don't, I don't know Shanghai per- perfectly. Um, I'm not going to put somebody else in danger, but it just looked cool. It just looked cool. I wanted to know what was down that alley, right? Um, and I just sort of turned and went down there. And it ended up being just beautiful. Um, it was sort of between sort of hutongs, which are these, you know, um, kind of cement uh, or stone uh, walls 
there's like clothing hanging. There's a guy flinging uh, fish remains out of like a soup um, <laughs> pot. Another guy smoking a cigarette and um, talking on a cell phone. And it's just beautiful. It's exactly what I was looking for. But it was one of the first times I did something just for me. You know, no photos. Dude, that's the key. The, the just for me. Yeah. Does that so, make you, how does that make you think that when you reflect on that? Because how often do we, and just in general, do things for ourselves? If we just speak, speak about the American culture in that regard. I mean, that to me is an incredibly important component. I think it is rare. And I think you spend so much time forcing that down that you can't even hear it when you're alone. Like it took me a long time to cultivate what that is in me. I mean, imagine you're ordering food at a, a restaurant, right? Some people have a really hard time if somebody else orders the dish that they were going to order. Like that's the weirdest thing, right? <laughs> but it used to happen to me too, right? Somebody orders the, the, the you know, um, fried chicken and waffles, right? Which, you know, been through LA, like that is, that's just delicious. Okay. Just objectively. <laughs> just maple a side syrup. note, a little recommendation from Aaron. Little, yeah. The Roscoe's chicken and waffles, little, little maple syrup, little, little, uh, hot we got sauce. A, little, a little hot chicken here in Nashville so we could compete. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So if somebody else orders it, I, I, I could feel that thing in you where you're like, should I order it too? Is that weird? Usually people make a little joke. Oh, funny. I was going to get the same thing. This, right. That is a perfect example of the gazillion times a day that we think through these things. Um, that does not happen to me anymore. In fact, I spend a lot of time uh, trying to make other people feel comfortable with their decisions. I have three friends that have the same backpack as me. And they were like, do you mind if I get the same backpack? And I was like, absolutely. It's the best one. They don't make it anymore. Sorry. It's a Belkin. <laughs> it's gonna um, I know. I know. It's just like this Belkin kind of side thing. It's, it's, it's not as fashionable now. But um, so, so I go on this trip. And for once, I can sort of feel what I want. Now, I grew up in a big family, too. It's a very communal thing. There's nothing wrong with being influenced with the people around you. I think the social media thing is a whole other question. But I like that I'm going to think about where I go to dinner with my siblings, right? I'm not going to just choose where I want to go because I know, you know, some have dietary restrictions, some really like things and not others. I like thinking about what other people want. Um, but knowing what you want is something unusual. So I, I go out and I, I look for what is the future of the world? Where is it? Is it in America? I don't know. Is it in India? Maybe. China? Maybe. East Africa? Eastern Europe? I'd never been to these places. So it, it seemed like I should go figure it out before I, I uh, embarked on another startup, if at all. You know, I'm always threatening to just go and get my PhD somewhere, um, usually in either computational neuroscience or uh, behavioral genetics. Um, and then I talk to my PhD friends and they're all just like, don't do that. You, like, won't have to, I, you won't have to worry about me competing for one of those, one of those seats. <laughs> I know it's not exactly, it's, I, I, you know, when it comes down to it, I'm, I'm very, very geeky. Um, so I, uh, so I just, I traveled and I traveled just one way ticket and I had these incredible experiences and I found that my story of education fundamentally changing my life was not unusual. I heard it everywhere, but the access to education was, and that's actually 
ultimately led to the outlier idea. I think I had some internal resistance to going back into something in the education industry. I mean, I was like, you know, building little AR glasses on my dinner table when I was back in San Francisco and ordering nematodes online to do some gene silencing experiments, you know, just like the normal, just normal people stuff. <laughs> that's, that sounds like my Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's, that's actually how outlier happens. When I, I, I came back, um, I thought, why don't we have a great four credit online solution? Right. And that's what we do at outlier. We make the, the world's uh, best online classes that are for credit and they transfer to you know, basically any school you want. I mean, you can't guarantee transfer anywhere, but ours transfer to Harvard. So it's like, you know, <laughs> you, you've passed a threshold. It's a pretty good sign. It's a pretty yeah. good sign. So, um, so basically I came back and said, well, why, why don't we have this? And then there's, there's no secret to learning a lot about stuff. You just read a ton, you know? So I just sat there at my dinner table and read and read and read, um, trying to understand why I have a lot of really smart people who are well-funded, tried this and failed. Um, a lot of it was luck, right? Some of them were just too early. Uh, 2005, we were still talking about whether or not there's broadband penetration. A lot of really great companies started then, and of course it didn't work out. Other times they were, you know, unable to get any sort of college credits. I mean, that's a very unusual thing right there. So it came down to four reasons. Um, now it actually really came down to about a hundred reasons, but you, you take it down to four because that's kind of how Silicon Valley works. Um, <clears throat> which isn't just, just sorry, it, it isn't just for uh, appearances. I think it's also helpful because it causes you to prioritize of these hundred reasons. What are the top four that you think make the difference? So one, prestige. Um, online education was frowned upon. So you can fix prestige by one, partner with a top university like University of Pittsburgh. Um, two, make it beautiful. And I fortunately know how to make things that are beautiful for lack of a better word. Um, secondly is the content itself you know, people had not really adapted it to be viewed on a laptop, to be viewed on a mobile phone. Um, you know, I think that it's easy to forget as an educator that when you are remote and you're online, your competition isn't a college down the street that you have a fun rivalry with. Your competition is TikTok, which is one of the stickiest, most magnetic things on the planet. We can see that by the numbers. So, wow, you've really got to make pre-calculus, interesting. <laughs> um, the third one is the social aspect. Online education is lonely. Um, I made it through computer science by having like four great friends and we just take all of our classes together and it was a total blast. Um, and then the final part is the price. Um, 2U did actually a pretty nice job of these online classes at one point, but you know, nobody wants to spend several thousand dollars for a class online, You know, at least not for an undergrad uh, introductory course. So we charge $400 and we say, if you do all the work and you don't pass, you get your money back. So we then aligned our business objectives. Say that, say that one more time. I don't want to, that, that's, <laughs> inc I mean, you talk about I, the word disruptor. I mean, it's just so overused, but I, if <laughs> that, that's like a pop-up thunderstorm you didn't expect on a sunny day on the boat or at the beach, you know? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to say it's an upgrade, right? Like it's it's too hot on the beach and you get a pop-up rainstorm and you're like, oh, that's lovely. So we really do feel like we're upgrading the university system. Because here's the thing, the university system that we have, the whole concept of a sage on the stage, et cetera, et cetera, put a person on the moon. That's pretty awesome. There's Let's not throw the whole thing out. Like <laughs> that's pretty amazing. So 
What we say is if you as a student do all the work in the class and you don't pass, you get your money back because it's on us to teach you, right? What, what our objective then is, is it becomes our objective is for you to learn, not for us to teach at you. And the, the, what that does is it causes an incentive for us to innovate. Now, of course, it makes our lives incredibly difficult, but uh, I would not be doing this company, I think, if uh, we weren't really trying to accomplish a, a major social mission here. How has it been received? Oh, people love it. People absolutely love it. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because that specific philosophy, students will run across and comment on, which is pretty amazing. Now, the flip side is this is hard. I've got an incredibly talented team. We're funded. We, we spend a lot of time making really extraordinary courses. Now, the punchline to all of it. So when we launched ASU Global Freshman Academies, uh, completion rates, and they're, they're really the only place you could get proper college credits without having to enroll and all sorts of things. And I love what ASU is doing. They're, they're very innovative. Um, but unfortunately, like the day we launched, uh, their completion rates were 2% and half a percent of their students were getting credit. They were coming through Global Freshman Academy. So that, that was the standard, you know? Um, wow. So we launched Outlier and we're like, wow, I hope every, all this work we did made a difference. And um, it does. We have completion and pass rates equivalent to in-person classes. That's the punchline. You, you make things really hard on yourself. You just obsessively focus on the student and what they need in, in this era. Somebody asked me that the other day. Do we need to just, does education just hit this apex right now? Do we just make these wants and it's good for answer, forever? And the answer is no. Education exists in the context of culture. When I was growing up, you know, if I could just get to a further library, which I asked my parents to bring me to, <laughs> They had more books. I could just sit on the floor while they went grocery shopping and read what was ever in the stacks. Um, I could learn a ton. I could sit down and, and read, let's say, a calculus book. And, you know, if you gave yourself three months on that and you're very motivated, you could learn it. And from my era, it was amazing to just get your hands on the calculus book, right? Like even just getting an encyclopedia from the last 20 years that was more up to date was pretty amazing. Modern students expect a lot more from that. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with expecting a lot more. They expect video. They expect it to be beautiful. They expect it to be well-structured. When I talk to students about what they want, they want a well-structured course. Love that. Love that. Because that, they could have said, I want something easy to pass. Which the irony is they want structure. And yet you seem to be incredibly comfortable in the uncomfortable and the unknown. <laughs> well, maybe I can be the, the, the person out at the, the front of the ship making the maps, you know? Um, like, I, I think I do love being amongst the unknown. I think there is a, there's an explorer gene in all of us. Well, all of us, uh, we homo sapiens sapiens. I think some of us get it stronger than others, especially if we had early explorations that went well, um, right? I, I think a lot of stuff gets determined there. And I, I hear stories from people that, I mean, it literally could be as simple as, hey, what's over that hill? Well, if it's a hornet's nest, it's suddenly less exciting to go explore what's over a hill in the future. But if it's a beautiful field of lupins, for example, um, you're more likely to explore in the future. I think that you've, I think I've completed it. I said at the beginning of our, our interview today that there's Jackson Pollock, right? I feel like Jackson Pollock, if Jackson Pollock became a community activist, 
he'd be Aaron Rasmussen. Like like you should see if for people who can't see, you know, they're just listening to us, just your posture and the change in which you, you talk about things. It feels like you are representing the kids in Eastern Oregon or in communities like that to not just sort of take the standard answer, you know, as, as the word um, that they should follow and that they can be curious. It's okay to open the door that they're just not sure of what's behind. Um, how does that sit for you? If I had a piece of advice, and this is actually in our user guide at Outlier, it's to treat the whole world like a first draft, right? You don't choose to be, to be born. You show up and it gets handed to you. And the trick is you don't have to accept that. You can say, thank you. I'll take it from here. So for example, my last MacBook, um, I did not like the radiuses on the beveling. It is too sharp. It's not a pleasant <laughs> thing to touch. Jeez, we do share a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what you did about it, but I used a bunch of masking tape. This is in my New York apartment too. And I filed all of the edges off of it. So I ended up with a pile of aluminum dust and a very comfortable MacBook. And what's great is people are like, oh no, Aaron's being crazy again, right? It's like one of those things. Then I hand them my MacBook and they're like, this feels amazing. And you're like, yes, it does. So what we say at Outlier, everything at Outlier is a first draft except the mission. Increase access to high quality higher education and reduce student debt. Everything else, every protocol I set, everything I say, it can be questioned. Now, here's the thing. This is where it comes with the kind of statistical confidence. And I think just, I've been running businesses for a, a, a long time now. I'm, I'm very used to um, being able to say no to people. Like there's no problem with me doing that. Now I expect to have to explain myself and I expect everyone to have to explain themselves if they say no, every one of my executives. Um, now, sometimes that explanation is it's my intuition. I, I try not to have that be the answer too much, but I think intuition is incredibly important. I'm a, you know, I read David Eagleman's Incognito, The Secret Lives of the Brain or something like that uh, years ago. And it talks about neural subsystems and how much sort of uh, knowledge is locked up in what we might call muscle memory. Um, that's still information. And when you've been running stuff for a long time, you start to get this sense where you say, hey, I am so sorry, but we got to pull an all-nighter. We got to get this out this week. I can just feel it. I have no, I have no other reason except the many years of experience. So my recommendation for, you know, and I, I wish I knew more about Jackson Pollock so I could respond directly. I'm like, God, I hope Jackson Pollock isn't, we didn't find out they're like a horrible person or like you know, something <laughs> like this. Never know. Um, but my, my recommendation is to treat the whole world as a first draft, no matter where you're from. Um, now it's hard. It's hard making a second draft on things. Destruction is far easier than creation, but it's worth the effort. I want to make sure people can go find Outlier and, and do their research um, and build that relationship of trust, which I think is incredible in, in the agreement that you have with students that, that participate and join that ecosystem. Where can they go? So they can go to outlier.org. Um, very straightforward there. there uh, there's 14 classes that we have up. And along with this first draft concept, in the lower right of every page, there's a button you can click. And you can send us a screenshot of the page you're on and your suggestions on how to change it. Because the students are part of what will improve Outlier. This is our first draft. Treat it like one.
Incredible. We want to thank Aaron Rasmussen. Go to outlier.org. I know that I'm going to. Uh, boy, so many interviews. I, I, I Like I said, I, I hope that the path has been uh, maybe not preconceived, but it's been thought out. And, and this has just been a wonderful journey where I didn't know where it was going to go, but I know that I'm the better for it. And I hope that you are too. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom. Headroom.